We're continuing with our season of Advent and thinking about what that means as people in this day and time and in this, uh, you know, the year of the plague, as they say. And um, so to do that, we're going to be looking at Isaiah 66 today. Uh, Isaiah 66 is interesting. If you've you've ever wondered how the themes of desolation and um, restoration, idolatry, and breastfeeding moms, how all that comes together, this is the perfect passage for you. So I hope you'll stay tuned. The portion that Stephen quotes back in Acts we've been looking at in his big long sermon, kind of given a a summarization of of Israel's history, is uh, from Isaiah 66 in the first couple verses. And so we'll talk a little bit later towards the end about why he likely was incorporating that into his message. I'd like to read the whole thing. Uh, we don't we don't have time for that, so I, I would like to um, encourage you to follow along as you as you can, or or to take it up and and read it later. But one of the main themes here, there's a couple themes. I want you to um, notice the idea of comfort, um, and and so that that's a that's a big theme. And so as I was thinking about comfort this week, and kind of. What's a way to introduce this idea to my to my own mind and then also to you? Um, I, we were sitting yesterday. We were Katie and I were sitting by the by the stove. We have a wood stove, and we were sitting there, um, probably having a fabulous discussion about something, as we always do. In actuality, we I think we're just staring out the window at each other um, or, or at each other. But Josiah was sitting there playing with his cars. And he was just so content to be sitting there between his parents playing with his little cars. And it struck me the concept of, of he's just so comfortable and safe right now. And so when I pose the question to you, like, when have you felt most comfortable, safe, at ease? Likely, for, for most of us, in our minds, we go back to a place in childhood. Um, maybe that's not for everybody, but but that's kind of where my mind went. So I, I had this memory of, is anybody in 4-H or does anybody know what 4-H is? I was in, great. Uh, I was in 4-H when I was a kid. And it was like 10 miles from where we lived, where we had to go to the meeting out in the country. And like the big country, because we lived in the country too, but we were just three miles outside of our town. And this was like 10 miles outside of town. And I remember coming back one night, and this was in the 80s, before seatbelt laws, before the arrangement of seats prevented this sort of thing. I remember it was dark, and I was tired, and it was a 10-mile drive back home on a, on a two-lane country road. And I remember my mom driving, and I just leaned over, and I laid my head down on her lap. And there was like the, the warm air coming out of the vents, you know, and there was the, the glow of the dashboard lights. Um, and then there was like soft music playing and my sisters were in the back seat. And I just remember having this, this very deep, satisfying sense of, of comfort and safety. And so uh, I, as, as I share that experience, I want you to think about what your own experience of, of comfort and safety might be. And keep that in the mind 
as we kind of go through this. So Isaiah 66, what I hope to do is just kind of give you my sense of what's going on there and then try to talk about a little bit of what Stephen is doing with it. I think in Isaiah 66, it's, it's bringing to light how God's power is capable to bring about restoration and comfort to his people. And this is held out as a great hope for them in the midst of a very uncomfortable and disappointing reality that they're existing in. So that might resonate with you. I mean, on different levels, we're experiencing discomfort, right? We're experiencing disappointment. We're experiencing um, just angst, frustration, anxiety. And so already this is a relevant passage for us, I, I think, and hopefully you'll see that. But let me begin from here with a, with a prayer that God would bless our time. Lord, we thank you for this day. And in a day where there is a lot of frustration, um, uncertainty, fear, anxiety, or just anger in our atmosphere around us, I pray that you would help us to see that you are the God who does bring comfort and you do hold out a great hope to fulfill your promise to your people and somehow help us to connect this to the reality of Jesus, the Messiah who has come already and has promised to come again. Amen. So if we just break this up a little bit, in Isaiah 66, again, verses 1 through 4. If you read through this, one of the things that you're going to notice is that this is describing God's nature is something that demands from his people. He demands something from his people. He declares, and this is what uh, I, Stephen quotes, Heaven is my throne, and earth is my footstool. Heaven is my throne, and earth is my footstool. He goes on then in the next couple of verses, verses 2 through 4, to, to compare the person who brings honorable engagement to him with the person who is dishonorable in their engagement with him. And so you see all these comparisons and contrasts. One makes a right sacrifice. One makes a wrong sacrifice. One makes a holy sacrifice of an acceptable sort in this ancient society. Another just, you know, breaks a dog's neck, right? It's just this absurdity of what is good and wholesome and righteous in their minds with what is the opposite. And he's laying these things out. So there's this great comparison of what it is to give honorable engagement compared to dishonorable engagement before God. It's as if he is saying, how you engage me matters. And we, we have to form a place in our hearts and our minds to, to receive, a, make a category to where we hear God saying, I am not an impotent, tame, haphazard God who you can just kind of waltz up to and approach and, and do what you want to do and then go on your merry way. He's, he's laying that out for them with this, with this comparison between 
this one person and this other person. Being called Israel in this time was supposed to mean something. It demanded something of them. It required something of individuals and of a people. And this is, if you think about it, how any meaningful relationship is, right? Um, Being a friend, if you're a good friend, that means something. That means that you, among other things, you, you give a listening ear when it's needed to your friends. Being a parent means that you, you sacrifice things that you want for your children's well-being, right? Our, our parents, hopefully, were in a place and capable of doing that for us. And that's a, that's a thing that is called of parents to do. Being a child demands, I tell my kids this all the time, I am wiser than you. It's not a strategy I recommend, but it comes out a lot, nonetheless. But being a child actually, I think, does mean that you have to subvert your own like sense of wisdom and knowledge about the world to what your parents have to say. Not always, not perfectly, but you get my drift, right? My, my five-year-old doesn't know what's best for him. I hope I know what's best for him. Not always, but he certainly doesn't. Being best, what's best for him is watching shows all day, eating cookies. That's, that's what he thinks is best. You can relate, I'm sure. And it also is like this in a marriage, right? Being married means something. That means you forsake others and you cling to your spouse. This is a defining aspect of any relationship. It demands something from those that are in that relationship. And it was the same way in ancient Israel. Being God's people demanded something of them. It meant, among other things, as you go on to read here in this passage, that they were to abandon idolatry and that they were to abandon the ways of the idolaters, those, those other people around them, which were engaging in this like sort of in worship of, of false gods. They were supposed to abandon that. It demanded this honest relationship. It demanded interaction with the God of heaven and earth who created all that there is. It demanded that from them. But Israel, they failed in that, right? If you know anything about the the First Testament, the Old Testament, they failed in that calling. They failed over and over and over again. There's lots and lots of stories and, and passages that bring out this failure for them in that they engaged in idolatry. They worshiped the gods of the other nations. They made idols. They went into the temple and they set up false idols around them. And then they said, we've, we've, we've paid our worship. Now we can go and just kind of do whatever we want to do. And God had said, no, this is not what it means to be in a relationship with me. Not at all. Not even close. And because of that reality, that, that, that falling and stumbling over and over and over, there was finally like a, a tipping point where God confronted them. Where he chastened them, as, as any good parent would do. For a wayward child at some point. And the people 
were sent into this physical and this spiritual exile. So the, the, the capital city, the place where God dwelled, the place where the people were to come and to meet him and to be connected to him and to receive his blessing, ultimately it was destroyed. They were sent away into a foreign land to be controlled by a foreign people and to like be exposed to these foreign ways of being. But there was always this promise that I will bring you back. I will bring about restoration. But for a while, they had to experience chaos. They had to experience discomfort. And they had to experience the misery of being disconnected physically and spiritually from God. But as already said, like it doesn't end there, right? And you know that story too. But in, in, in verse 7 through 13, we start to see this. We start to see this elevation of this, this restoring language, this nurturing language. So like a good parent, in this case, Jerusalem, and I think it's, it's God portraying himself through the capital city of Jerusalem where he, where he comes and, and takes up residence, He's portraying himself and portraying Jerusalem like a nurturing mother. Jerusalem is personified. But if you read some of this language, so just starting in verse 7. And go up to uh, verse 10. Be glad for Jerusalem and rejoice over her, all who love her. Rejoice greatly with her. All who mourn over her, so that you may nurse and be satisfied from her comforting breast, and drink deeply and delight yourselves from her glorious breasts. For this is what the Lord says I will make peace flow to her like a river, and the wealth of the nations like a flood. You will nurse, you hear this motherly, nurturing language. You will nurse and be carried on her, la- on her hip and bounced on her lap. As a mother comforts her son, so I will comfort you. And you will be comforted in Jerusalem. This is very dramatic imagery, this metaphor that's being played out here through Isaiah's message about how God is going to bring them back into his presence as a nurture and comfort them as a nurturing mother would do. So I, I, I think there's this restoration, this love, this care, this comfort, this projecting of this ideal imagery of how God is going to take the rebellious child and bring them back to him. And love them like they've never been loved before. And so two truths kind of come out of this, this summation here. That, you know, from the first verse on through verse 13. Two, two basic elemental truths come out here, I think. One, because heaven is his throne and the earth is his footstool, God cannot be domesticated. He can't be 
treated like the gods of the other nations that were just little g-gods who maybe were like, you know, the, the god of the ocean, the god of the storm, the god of the underworld, the god of the sky. There's no place for that in this system. In his system, there is, I am in heaven and in earth. Everything is mine. I have sovereignty over all of it. I possess all of it. Therefore, you can't treat me like I'm one of these other gods. That's not how I am. That's not my nature. So that's, that's one truth. Another is his capacity to provide love, to nurture, to comfort. In the way that it's portrayed, like, like you know, no mother nursing has and caring and loving for her baby has ever been able to do before. This is an essence that emanates from his, his, his very nature itself. So these, these two truths need to be held up together. The God is serious, and he's comforting. He's serious, and he's comforting. And through Isaiah, that, that's his nature. I think, I think there's a lot of places we could go look at that, but that, that's one place you can see it. But these, 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 these ideas capture at least a big portion of his nature. And through Isaiah, God is promising here to his, to his people that, again, are in an uncomfortable, unfamiliar, strange, undesirable place. He's giving them this promise this beautiful promise of restoration that they will come back to him. He will take care of him. And it flows from there that they will recognize who he is truly in in essence and that they will receive comfort and their true residency. Right? So those are two truths that kind of come out of this. And so as we transition now from this Isaiah 66 passage, which I would love to spend a lot more time on because I think there's a lot of really fascinating things here. Um, As we transition from this and think about Advent, think of Advent as this great in-between. Our place in it is this great in-between. It's this great, like, chasm that exists and here we are, smack in the middle of it. As we celebrate Jesus' first coming and hope for his second coming, there's lots of opportunities here. One of the opportunities is to see how Isaiah's beautiful picture of restoration and comfort becomes ours as we perceive the very nature of God through the person of Jesus. The very nature of God through the person of Jesus. This world, I don't, I don't have to tell you, right? You know this. The, the world is broken. It's backwards. It's groaning. It's dark. It's shallow. Things don't go the way they should go. You know, children get sick. Old people are lonely. Um, nature seems to just be ravaging. This world is is just broken. And then, you know, we look in the mirror and we say, what is wrong with me? Right? When we're honest. 
Why am I this way? Why do I participate in this? Why am I willingly participating in this? Rather than pushing it back. And we feel that. We feel this brokenness acutely at times. We, we probably, a lot of us in certain different ways, we feel it right now, right? And, and it's real and it's uncomfortable. It makes us kind of like, when can I just get comfortable? Like, when is, when is it going to feel better? I don't like how this feels. Um, but it's also, so that's true. But it's also true that the Lord made promises to his people. They were promises for a future that came through and came true in Jesus' birth. We are his people, right? If, if you are in Christ, you are his people. But that restoration isn't complete. So this promised restoration about coming back to Jerusalem, it's not complete. To mix a metaphor here, Jerusalem is still being built, right? You got the mothers nurturing. But Jerusalem is still being built, this life, and, and we are still broken. And so we find ourselves living in this great in-between place. To where Jesus has been born, but it's still being built, and it's not finished yet. So in Jesus, we are related to God the Father by the power of God's Spirit. But often we're, we're not content. Rather than being feeling like we're, you know, our mother is bouncing us on her knee or holding us up close to her. We feel like, you know, sometimes we're just getting kicked in the teeth. Whatever the exact opposite of your mother bouncing you on her knee and holding you close to her is. We feel like that sometimes. Um, so rather than nursing at our mother's breast, we are, we're choking, we're gagging, we're spitting up. Um, we're, 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 you know, GI issues. You have a, ever had a baby, you know, in your presence, you know what that is. But this is how, this is how things are, but it's, it's not always true. That's, that's not the final story, right? It's not the final story. What is true is that Jesus has come. Okay. And so we have hope. We have faith that he is coming again to make all of this finally true once and for all. So I have an analogy. You've maybe heard it before. I don't want to spend a lot of time on it, but just to, it helps me. It helps, like Katie says, she likes it. So I think it probably is good. I trust her judgment. May 8th, 1945. Um, that's called V-Day, Victory in Europe Day. If you're a World War II person, you might know that. May 8th, 1945. That's when Europe was declared, Germany was defeated right? In World War II. That started, that's like Jesus's second coming. That started, Jesus's first coming was like D-Day. So let me get my date right. June 6th, 1944, when the Allied powers landed and established themselves on the European continent. Once they were able to do that, that was a sure sign that this is all but over. I get, there's some battles to fight. There's some things to mop up and clean up. But once they established themselves in a real way in Europe on the continent, it was just a matter of time. And, and that's kind of a good, helpful analogy, I think. Jesus' first coming is that he, he's landed. He, he came, he was born, he's established himself. And it's just a matter of time until this gets worked out. But the victory is assured. Victory is assured. 
So we are in this great in-between. Jesus is victorious. We are living in this restored Jerusalem. But it isn't exactly the heavenly Jerusalem, you know, the baby with the mom on her knee that we see promised. It's not exactly that. Um, we're still waiting. But this, this holding these two things up, it, it explains a lot. It explains why there's so much discomfort. But it also explains where we can find comfort, where we can find hope and another reality that is more true than what we perceive sometimes. So finally, this is a season of opportunity, Advent, but also the virus and, you know, the rabid fox that we had running through our neighborhood earlier this summer and the shark attack, you know, all the like chaotic things that seem to just land this summer and this fall and this winter. This is a season to examine our existence of this in-between. Jesus has come. We are in a safe space. We, uh, I, don't, I don't like that phrase. So we are in a safe place. How about that? We are in a safe place, even though we don't feel that. We are in a safe place. But he needs to come again to remake that Jerusalem fully and finally so that our perceptions line up with the reality. Because he is the Lord right now. He is. So this is an opportunity to feel that discomfort, to long for normalcy, and that will heighten our expectation and anticipation of Jesus' return. But this is also a season to examine. So Stephen, as I mentioned earlier, cited this, this passage in Isaiah. I think he's arguing to the Jewish leaders there that he was engaging with that they were missing the comfort of God that came through Jesus. They missed it. They didn't believe him. They didn't see him. They didn't believe him. They didn't. They thought he was a heretic. They missed it. Like, here's your mom. No, that's not my mom. That's somebody else's mom. She's gross looking. I don't want anything to do with her. I don't, go, I don't go up, you know, as a child, I didn't lay my head in, you know, strange women's laps, as, as strange as that sounds, right? They missed it. They didn't get that this was God's comfort to them. And ancient Israel, it, it, you know, they, they conformed to the practice of idolatry more than they conformed to the calling of God. How do we seek comfort in the ways that are disconnected from God? How do we conform ourselves to man-made systems and philosophies in order to get the comfort that we so desperately crave? And then finally, I already said finally, but this is finally, finally, a practical consideration. The church, I'm just going to read this, what what, what I have here. The church is the place for Christians to dwell with God, to be nourished and comforted through Christ. It is the means by which the heavenly Jerusalem is coming upon the earth once and for all. In Christ, we are called into a family. And Missio Dei is a local expression of that church. In this family, we should find consolation, correction, and comfort. And we are to spur one another on to continually place our hope in the Christ who has appeared once and who will appear again. So if we are followers of Jesus, we really should be aligned 
with a local church. Live life as a meaningful part of that local church. This is our way to experience true hope through Christ. Because you need comfort, you need hope, and the church is the means by which God is remaking and recreating this world so that all God's people may finally and fully find their comfort and their eternal home. I'm going to close finally, 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 right? And a reading um, of scripture serving as a closing prayer. This is from Isaiah. Somewhere else in Isaiah, he says, comfort, comfort my people. Here in Isaiah 44, again as a prayer. And now listen, Jacob, my servant, Israel, whom I have chosen. This is the word of the Lord, your maker, the one who formed you from the womb. He will help you. Do not fear, Jacob, my servant, upright one whom I have chosen. For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your descendants and my blessing on your offspring. They will sprout among the grass like poplars by a flowing stream. This one will say, I am the Lord's. And another will use the name of Jacob. Still another will write on his hand, the Lord's, and take on the name of Israel. Amen.